Hello and welcome to the SportsGrade podcast. My name is Ryan Walker and with me as always is the SportsGrade professor himself, Ruben Williams. How are you, mate? G'day, Ryan. I'm very well, thank you. I am not a qualified professor by any stretch of the definition, but uh, uh, thank you for that introduction. I'm glad that we are joined by an actual professor today. Mm. We're going to learn a few things, I feel. Yeah. Well, Liverpool, the Australian Olympic mm-hmm. team, the Socceroos, Melbourne Footy Club. Uh, I don't think I've missed anything else out. Uh, I think you've missed about half his career. It's, it spans 50 years and top yeah, and touches well, on just about every elite organisation in yeah, the world. I mean, probably, I mean, the resume speak for itself, as you just heard. Uh, some of the well, calibre well, of organisations that this man has worked for is unbelievable. So I'm pumped for this episode, uh, as I'm sure too. you are. Author of a book that sold 200,000 copies and is read by every single uh, sports medicine student in Australia, I believe. And an cool. Order of Australia medal. <laughs> and Yeah, just quietly. <laughs> Which <laughs> we forgot to mention. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's a massive, massive episode. Um, so, I'm pumped. Um, so, yeah. And he's, and he's your team doctor as well. He is. So, he's a, a the- legend of the University Blues Football Club, um, Peter Bruckner. Reg- so- regularly treats your calf. Yeah. Well, yeah. As you know, my calves, my hamstrings, whatever it might be, um, are constantly giving way. Uh, so we need the best of the best down at the mm. Blues Footy Club. So, mm. um, no, it's a huge episode, Rubes. Um, so let's get cracking into it. Yeah. Before we go anywhere, before we dive into Peter Bruckner and uh, the wealth of knowledge that he's got, um, we've got to mention our good friends at Deakin University because, as you know, and everyone else listening knows every single course is backed by industry experts at Deakin Universities. Uh, so, you can be sure that you're going to get a job you want with a degree that employers want. Now, what we love about Deakin is that they're very progressive and it's very real-world learning coming out there, Ryan. So, mm. for anyone thinking about diving into the sports industry, check out Deakin University. Uh, I had a great time there and I'm sure you will too. I have heard you had a great time there, um, some great <laughs> results, some great studying, uh, doing all the right things. So, well done to you. Um, let's get cracking once again before we do. Uh, there's been some great messages on LinkedIn lately that I might, that I might mm. add, Rubes, uh, and yep. genuinely just asking questions about episodes and chewing the fat, uh, mm. and it's been quite cool. So... If anyone out there wants to have a chat to us, hear about anything we've been chatting about, go ahead and message us on LinkedIn. We're, we're on there. We're active. Um, we're keen to chat. Um, all right. Let's delve into it. Um, what, I mean, we had one of the great discussions and I'm saying right now it's going to go for more than an hour, but it's absolutely elite listening. Uh, what are some things that stood out to you? Yeah, when you get when you get Peter Bruckner on the podcast, you don't stop him from talking. So uh, lengthy episode, but incredible episode. But one of the uh, the exciting things to look forward to is you know the first step that you should take if you're looking for a practical opportunity in sports medicine. Everyone knows practical experience is how you start to develop your skills. 
And Peter very blatantly spells out what the first thing you should do to get experience is. So, um, how about yourself, Ryan? What did you uh, take away from it? Uh, I love, you know, how he was able to somehow get Kathy Freeman's gold medal in his pocket, just having to take care of it. And that is, shares a little bit of insight about what he's about to t- talk about. But the fact that Peter Bruckner had her gold medal uh, in his pocket for a little while, just taking care of it, uh, says it all. So, um, that particular story was quite good, but just the wealth of experience and being able to do that uh, was just incredible. Yeah, one of the uh, the commonly posed questions in Australian sport is, uh, where were you when Cathy won gold in mm. Sydney 2000? And Peter's answer is right by her side in three <laughs> hours. And so, I still can't believe that Cathy Freeman's doctor is your doctor, Ryan. Mm. But anyway, uh, my final piece of <laughs> this episode to look forward to is the trajectory that he created for people looking to get a, a career in sport medicine. Prior to Peter... There was no clear pathway. There was no step one, step two, step three. So, he he wrote the manual. He wrote the blueprint of do this, do this, do that. You're in sports medicine. So, to hear it straight from him was uh, incredibly insightful. Amazing. Well, let's get into it. Grab a pen and enjoy this chat with Peter Bruckner. Brookie. Welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast. My pleasure. Great to be here. Peter, we'll get into your career in, in just, a second, uh, just a sec, and uh, it's quite a long list of uh, organisations you've worked for, <laughs> one of which includes uh, the Uni Blues Football Club, which our dear Ryan is a large part of. Indeed. Now, you've been there for, for 45 years, I hear. Uh, no, this is actually my 50th season this year. So, uh, 50th season? Yeah, 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 it's pretty sad, really, isn't it? Yeah, my, my kids keep saying, when I'm going to leave university? And I sort of figure, well, probably <laughs> not now, but anyway, don't worry. Well, yeah. you've spent, what, half a century at this one football club? Yep. Where does where does uh, our dear Ryan Walker stack up in the, uh, the uh, thirds captains over the years? Well, you know, there's two elements to a football club, isn't there? There's the on the field and off the field. Let's just say uh, Ryan's contribution off the field has been better than his contribution on the field. <laughs> my, uh, I reckon, I reckon my best contribution to Uni Blues is education, and I say education <laughs> through the medical staff that are so happy to give their time uh, and, and to, to learn under your tutelage, Brookie. Um, but they've been lucky to have several hamstrings, calves, concussions. Uh, I did a bit of a weird shoulder that appeared to be nothing really, uh, but that's where my input has come from, helping people yeah. learn in the medical profession. Yeah, well, when I th- when you said education, I thought you meant, you know, life education, that, you know, all those <laughs> players under your wing uh, walks at you, you know, you take them under their wing, under your wing and yeah. tell them what life's all about really, these youngsters. But, um, yeah. Uh, you know, you Good learn about people's pain. You learn about people's. Uh, you learn about people's pain tolerance too, Ruben. When you, you know, you hear about you know <laughs> shoulders that you know they carry on as if they've sort of lost arm and shoulder and so on, and then uh, you know, all of a sudden they uh, looks like they're playing the next week. You know, so, anyway. <laughs> no, no, no names mentioned. You know, we won't uh, won't any particular uh, incidents or anything. But <laughs> well, I'll leave that one be. I, I won't comment because I know. Oh, one person in particular, loyal listener, Connor Lappin, uh, oh, he, I reckon oh, he reminds me of 
my shoulder injury almost you know every time I see him. So he'll be very happy to see or hear that this has made an appearance on the podcast. So <laughs> shout out to well, Lapo in Sydney. He's a loyal yeah. listener. Well, no, I think he missed two games with a little bruise on his hip once. So you know, I wouldn't talk too much about Lapo really. You know, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> we could do a we could do a whole podcast. I think about Ryan and his injury history. But um, Ryan, I'm guessing it wasn't the reason why he got into sport medicine, Peter. What uh, what point did you decide that you wanted to take your career down that pathway, and what were some of the steps you took to get there? Well, I guess I'd always been obsessed with sport, you know, right from when I was a little kid. Um, you know, my uh, major passion was was sport. If I wasn't uh, playing sport, I was watching it or reading about it, or you know, I'd sort of race out and you look at the sports pages first thing in the morning and all that sort of stuff. So I guess you know, uh, sport was always uh, you know. My, and I don't know why, really. Like, my parents are quite normal, you know, so they're not obsessed with sport at all. And uh, I don't know why I uh, I became so passionate about sport. I wasn't particularly good at anything. Like, I was a reasonable, you know, as you, you know, most people really played a bit of cricket, played a bit of footy, and, you know, I was okay. But certainly wasn't anything amazing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I always wanted to do something in sport. What I really wanted to do when I left school was be a sports commentator, you know. I mean, uh Bruce McAvoy is very lucky that I made another decision because you know he wouldn't have been the number one man if I uh, <laughs> if I'd taken that on. But um, but my uh, my mother uh, very wisely uh, steered me in the direction of medicine rather than um, sports commentary. And um, so um, yeah, I did uh, I did medicine um, and then eventually sort of made my way into sports medicine. Um, and nowadays there's a very clear pathway that. Uh, which I was partly responsible for establishing, um, but that's another story. But uh, in those days, it was really just, uh, you know, get a bit of experience and uh, read a couple of books and jump into the deep end, and that's really what uh, what I did. Um, ironically, uh, it was my involvement with Uni Blues that actually gave me my big sort of break in, uh, in sports medicine. Uh, I remember I, um, I got a gig, I got invited to uh, – accompany the Australian team to the World University Games. So World Student Games had never taken a doctor before um, and uh, I got a phone call from the lady who headed Melbourne Uni Sport and said, look, you know, you've been a great contributor to Uni Sport, blah, 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 you know, um, you know would you like to, to accompany the team? And I thought, wow, that's fantastic. And uh, then she said, the only problem is you've got to pay for yourself. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'd, we'd just come back from overseas and just got married, had, you know, bought a house, had zero money. So I went home, told uh, my dear li- my wife, and she said, oh, well, it's a pity you can't go. I said, no, no, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. <laughs> I've got to go. <laughs> and um, she rolled her eyes for the, you know, 100,000 time in our relationship. And, um, and I just sort of thought, I really couldn't afford to go, to be honest. But, uh, you know, you miss three or four weeks' work. You don't get paid at all. You actually have to pay your, your, your way. But I just thought it was uh, that was my opportunity. You know, you've got to get it. You've got to get an opportunity. When you get that opportunity, you know, you've got to grab it. And uh, to me, that was my opportunity. You know, I had a chance to uh, to show what I could do. And from then on, you know, that was the thing that, that you know, Gave me my big uh, my big break really, and um, so indirectly it was you know due to my sort of long involvement with with a, a sporting team you know having played there and, and been involved there and so on. So um, yeah, I went off to uh, to Edmonton in Canada, the World Student Games, and then you know met a whole bunch of people there in swimming and athletics, and then got invited to look after the swimming team, the athletic team, and just things went from uh, from there. I did you know two more World Student Games in Japan and uh, 
and uh, in Zagreb, and then um, yeah, then did the swimming team for a while, then did the ath team, and uh, and you know a bunch of a uh, bunch of things. So it was sort of a bit of luck, but it was also um, you know just the fact that I'd put in the hours and and you know volunteered and so on. And I think that's one of the really uh, important things uh, in I think in, in sport more than anything. You know, there's this culture of volunteering and. Um, you know, I I did lots of volunteering over time. You know, I'd, I'd go down to I loved athletics, and and I used to go down every Thursday night to inter club at, at Olympic Park and just uh, sit in the medical room and uh, and look after people with uh, a couple of friends who were physios. And everyone thought I was crazy, but you know, I finished up being the you know Australian athletics team doctor and went to two Olympics. So, you know, you sort of um, you've got to put in the put in the hard yards. You know, you can't just sort of nowadays I get people saying, oh, you know, you know. I've been doing sports medicine for years. Tom, I did the Olympics. So, well, hang on, you know, it's, uh, not quite that quite that easy. So, uh, it's time I did the Olympics. I, I want to know. Who's- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, but but nowadays, um, as I said, there, there's a very clear pathway into uh, into the sports medicine. But but the thing about all these all the professional careers in sport, whether sports medicine or sports physio or sports massage or whatever. You know, you look up there, the university courses, and there's no course that says sports medicine or sports physiotherapy or anything like that, you know. So you basically got to become a doctor or a physio or a masseur or whatever first. And then, you know, you subspecialize into uh, into sports medicine. The same in medicine, you know, uh, as I said, when I first started, there was no such pathway. There was no such specialty of sports medicine. And we fought long and hard for about uh, 15 years to develop the, uh, the specialty of sports medicine. And now it's a fully-fledged, uh, especially the same as you know orthopedic surgery or cardiology or, or whatever, and uh, that was a long, hard battle that uh, that took many, many years of my life out of me. Um, but we got there in the end. And um, so, if you want to become uh, a sports physician, which is what we call a sport and exercise medicine physician now, you do a medical degree. So that uh, that might be an undergraduate degree at some universities, which is five or six years. Uh, or a postgrad degree in some universities where you do a, a you know biomed science or something like that to start with, and then do a postgrad medical degree. So there are the options. You then tend to work in the hospital system for uh, for three or four years, just getting uh, getting experience, and then you branch off into all these different potential directions. So uh, you might want to go to general practice, you might want to go to sort of a medical specialty or a surgical specialty. But if you want to do sports medicine, you apply for the sports medicine training program do an exam, and then once you get accepted onto that sports medicine training program, you've got four years uh, in that program. Um, so in uh, that time, you're working in clinics, uh, in some of the you know, big sports medicine clinics, initially under sort of fairly tight supervision, and then gradually over the four years, less and less supervision. You're looking after a sporty or you're helping someone look after a sporting team. You might be the second doctor for an AFL team or something like that. Uh, you're covering, you know, marathons and triathlons, and, and getting all that experience, and, uh, and and getting plenty of teaching along the way. So it's a pretty long haul, you know. If you do six years of medicine, three or four years in the hospital, and then another four years of sports medicine, you know, you're uh, what's that? Six, three, nine, yeah, at least a minimum of thirteen years, really, before you become a fully fledged sports medicine, uh, sport and exercise medicine physician. So you've got to uh, earn your stripes. You got to earn your stripes, but you've got to love it. You know, I mean, it's it's not the best paid branch of medicine, um, but uh, if you love sport, then it's you know it's certainly the most enjoyable. And uh, 
you know, I always sometimes feel guilty for getting paid to uh, you know, paid to watch sport, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> but I've got over that. It's okay. It, it sounds like the the uh, the student or university uh, sector of sport is a great opportunity to then propel your career. Um, as I've just discovered, we've got something in common that I didn't realize before, Peter, and that was my launch pad into Cricket Australia was Australian University Sport, and I did an internship at the World Uni Games in, in Taipei. Right. And there I met one of the doctors called Richie, uh, someone whose last name escapes me, but he went on to become the team doctor of the Australian cricket team. Yeah, he took over from me, in fact. Yep. yep. There, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Yep. So, yeah, small Australian world, University right? Sport, yeah. It is, Australian yeah. University it's, Sport, get into that. Yeah, it's uh, – <laughs> Well, look, I think it's just being involved in something, you know. I mean, whether it's the university team or whatever, but, uh, yeah, I think uh, that involvement is really, really important. And, uh, you know, it's, it's enjoyable. I mean, it's so enjoyable I'm still there 50 years later. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a really important part of my life. But, uh, in fact, it's actually the, the level of – even though I've, I've, you know, I've obviously been to Olympics and World Cups and, you know, world this and world that and so on, Premier League and, and Ashes Tests and so on, but the level of sport I actually enjoy being involved with most is that sort of a serious amateur sport, you know, where uh, something like a Guinea Blues or an A-grade uh, sort of Premier League amateur football club um, or be it a Premier League hockey club that I've been involved with for a long time. People who are very good at what they do, they take it seriously, they train hard, but it's an amateur thing. They've got a life and they, you know, they can have a few beers afterwards and, and enjoy the social aspects and so on. And uh, I really enjoy that that level of sport. It's not quite as life or death or not, not as much money involved as, as professional sport. So, um, but, yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's the really my passion uh, is at that level of sport. You've had quite the uh, amazing career, Brookie, as you just mentioned. You know, you've worked for Liverpool, you've been the Australian cricket team, doctor, you've worked for the Socceroos, the Australian Olympic team. Um not to mention you've got an Order of Australia medal, by the way, as well, just to add to that little list. But is there a particular role in amongst the, those many roles that you've held that stands out as a favourite to you? Yeah, I, I get asked that a little bit. And, and, and to be honest, you know, I don't have one that sort of just jumps right out. I mean, uh, you know, they've, they've all been enjoyable for different reasons. Um, I guess, you know, I love team sports. So I love being involved with a team. Um, so I've, I've done a couple of AFL teams uh, and, um, and obviously the Socceroos and Liverpool and the cricket team. Um, but also, you know, I love athletics as well, you know, so I love being the athletics team doctor and, and you know, going to, uh, you know, I guess, you know, it's appropriate timing, I suppose, but uh, the Olympics, you know, were obviously have been a highlight for me. I've I've always been obsessed with the Olympics. Um, I remember we didn't have many books in our house when I was a kid, but one book we had was a big sort of coffee table size book on the Melbourne Olympics. It was it was all these colour photos. They were terrible photo colour photos, you know, sort of uh, as it you know was the case in nineteen fifty six or whatever. But there's this beautiful book, and I remember I used to read that. I could tell you right now. Every gold medalist in the athletics in in nineteen fifty six, you know, I just remember that reading that book. So, I've always loved the the Olympics, and in fact, I was I was living in uh, in England in in nineteen eighty, doing uh, you know, I finished my medical degree, and then decided I'd just go to England because there's lots of sport over there, and uh, I'd go and do a bit of work and just uh, you know, go and watch a whole heap of sport. And uh, I remember thinking I'll never be this close to the Olympics, so I went to Moscow uh, to the Olympics 
and uh, which was a interesting experience. Um, but yeah, ironically, you know, sort of uh, what you know, sixteen years later, I was actually involved in, in the Olympics. So I did two Olympics, um, Atlanta in nineteen ninety six, and, and then Sydney. Uh, so I was incredibly lucky with my timing to uh, get a home Olympics. But uh, both incredible experiences. Um, Atlanta, I'll never forget because um, you know one of the great things about it is you get to walk, you get to march in the opening ceremony. You know, so you know with all the athletes and uh, you know I'm marching in and you know. Uh, feeling pretty good about myself, and then you know, buzzing, and um, and then the opening ceremony, you know, didn't quite have the drama this time, I suppose. Oh, it did a bit, but it's always this thing of you know, who's going to light the flame, you know, who's going to light the cauldron, and, and there was yeah. lots of discussion, and there were different athletes sort of doing the last few legs, and oh, you tick them off, tick them off. Anyway, uh, we're all in the middle of the, uh, the the ground, the middle of the track, you know, in the centre of the track, there lined up all the different teams. And all of a sudden, all the lights in the stadium went out. And you thought, oh, God, blackout or, or what? You know, sort of like, uh, and then all of a sudden, there was one spotlight shining high up in the stand on a platform. And there was Muhammad Ali holding the torch up above his head with his sort of Parkinsonian tremor and uh, shaking and uh, so on. And it's just one of those moments that you just take your breath away. And I'll just never, never forget that. He was arguably the greatest athlete of the, of the 20th century. He just, Standing there, and, and you know, you feel very privileged to uh, to be there. So, so that was a great, uh, great experience. That was sort of the start of my Olympic experience, really. And then, um, and Sydney was just a, an incredible. Um, I actually wasn't uh, I wasn't the doctor in Sydney. I'd, I'd uh, been demoted to team manager, and um, so I was the oh, doctor and assistant. Sorry to hear that. And, uh, I was the doctor and assistant manager in <laughs> Atlanta, and uh, and the. Uh, yeah, they asked me if I'd, I'd be the manager, which was a, a pretty big ta- job. You know, it's the biggest team. I think we had 82 athletes and 35 staff or something like that. And, you know, it was, it was a massive organisational sort of thing. But it was great, great experience. So, uh, but um, one of my one of my jobs was to uh, to look after the athletes when they when they finish. And um, obviously one of whom was Cathy Freeman. And, um, you know, most of your listeners are probably too young to, uh, to even have be aware of, of the Cathy Freeman saga. But, uh, you know, that, those of us, those of you who were around in, in, the, in the Sydney Olympics, you know, I mean, it was all about Cathy Freeman. She was the biggest name in the Olympics. You know, she was uh, our best chance of a, of a medal in the, in the biggest event in the Olympics, the athletics. She was female, indigenous. You know, there was, it's all about Freeman. You know, everything was about Freeman night. You know, you got tickets for Freeman night. What are you doing on Freeman night? Having a barbecue, we're having, you know, we're doing, um, there's parties all around the country. And, um, but the pressure on her was, was unbelievable. I mean, I don't think there's ever been anyone in the history of the Olympics who's been under as much pressure as Kathy Freeman. And, and, you know, just in case there wasn't enough, yeah, well, let's get her to light the flame as well. You know, just in case there's someone in the world who doesn't realize that Kathy Freeman's supposed to win the 400, uh, 400 meters. And, um, <laughs> And which she duly did, you know, she came out and, and, and won. And, um, again, for those who weren't there, um, what usually happens after, after you, know, you win a gold medal is it, you, know, you prance around and carry on and, you know, scream and yell and then, you know, have a million photos taken and, uh, you know, have the flag wrapped around you and all that sort of stuff. Well, what Cathy Freeman did was she just sat on the track with sort of a head in her hand uh, for what seemed like ages, you know, and it was probably, I don't know, 30 seconds a minute, something like that. And I was sitting in the, in the stand next to Chris Wardle, the, the head coach, and we'd go, come on, come on, go, go on, get up, Kath, get up, you know. <laughs> and um, and which she eventually did and then slowly sort of, you know, did her 
lap and, and things. But um, so it was my job to basically be her minder for the next sort of three or four hours afterwards, which was an incredible privilege. And, you know, we took her through media and, uh, oh, goodness. and then, uh, you know, in to see her family and then up to, to be interviewed by Bruce and then down to drug testing and, and so on. And the interesting thing is that not once in that three or four hours did she ever say, oh, I'm so happy. Oh, that's, you know, that's what I've, all I've ever wanted to do. Oh, it's the greatest moment of my life. She must have said to me 15 times, I reckon, oh, Doc, I'm so relieved. Oh, God, Doc, it's such a relief. And all she, you know, I almost sort of felt a bit sad that, you know, all she could feel on that night was just a relief. She hadn't let the country down. She hadn't sort of stuffed up, you know. Uh, now, I'm sure since then she's had a lot of pleasure and enjoyment out of it. And whenever the Olympics comes around, I'm, she enjoys seeing uh, seeing that on the TV. But it was, uh, yeah, it really gave me an insight into the sort of uh, the pressure. And she had this amazing ability to sort of tune out. You know, people thought she was just being a bit, you know, vague or being, but you know, it was just her way of coping with with the pressure. And you saw even in the, this this Olympics, you know, people like Biles and so on are under enormous pressure. You just struggle to cope with it. And, and she was incredible the way she she coped with it, and uh, yeah, I just felt incredibly privileged. I mean, I remember we were sitting down and, and drug testing, you know, and uh, and and then we were chatting about where we were going to go on our holidays or something. And, and I remember thinking to myself, "This is just bizarre." You know, here I am, the whole country's going crazy because this kid, this little girl, has won that won the gold medal, and you know, people, are, you know, carrying on everywhere. And and here am I with her sitting there <laughs> talking about a holiday. You know, just uh, <laughs> it was the most bizarre experience, but one that I was incredibly grateful for and, and you know lucky that i had that uh, you know had that experience and yeah we caught up a while back and had a bit of a laugh about it all and uh, and so on but uh, yeah it was a pretty pretty special night as bruce would say <laughs> yeah well it's that that is incredible like everyone kind of talks about where were you when kathy won the gold medal and uh, your answer is i was <laughs> minding her for the next three hours after she won <laughs> uh, i actually had the middle i had the gold medal in my pocket for a couple of hours i was She's a bit vague. Maybe I, maybe I could have got away with it. She probably realised eventually. <laughs> um, Brookie, what stands out to me in your career? Because you've had like several really high-profile jobs. One thing that stands out to me is the consistency at which you just bounce from one to the next. I'm wondering what has been a key factor in you moving between these teams, or, or what skills or influences allowed you to to do so. Uh, maybe teams just get sick of me after a while and move me on. You know? <laughs> um, I think there'd be a lot of people who'd be happy just to get one of those experiences in their life. Well, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you know, I started off, um, you know, I was an uh, AFL club doctor. I was a Melbourne club doctor for a number of years in the, in the late 80s. And, and and I remember thinking, you know, I mean, it was fantastic. You know, I loved, loved that experience and Melbourne did very well in that time and so on. And, um, you know, I could have sort of stayed in that, job you know i guess you know some people have you know for a long time um a couple of docs uh was one doctor who was you know there in those days is still still there and um uh, in an afl club um but i guess i've always been someone who wanted to challenge myself a bit and maybe get out of my comfort zone um hence the uh you know then i moved into athletics and then uh and then you know that was 10 years or so with uh, culminated in those two olympics and then after Sydney, uh, I sort of had a bit of a break because you know my kids were sort of becoming teenagers and they had their own sport, and I just wanted to spend more time at home. So I sort of stopped travelling with teams because it's a lot of it's a lot of time. You know, Sydney in particular was, you know, most of that year I sort of be away from home. You know, at, at camps and meetings and and things. And um, so uh, I decided it was time to uh, 
time to spend more time at home. So uh, uh, and it also enabled me to indulge in my uh, my sports commentary. So I became uh, the ABC's boundary rider. So uh, it was revenge revenge on my mother. I finally became a sports commentator. All those years. You got to finally live out your childhood. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It was a bit of a circuitous route, and uh, but not the usual one. But um, that was good fun. But um, and then uh, then a few years later, the Socceroos came uh, came knocking and said, "Would I be interested?" And uh, so what, what in, year is the Socceroos? Uh, so that was just after the 2006 World Cup. So that, yep. uh, uh, that was, you know, obviously their amazing World Cup and the, mm. all those goals and Kale and Kiel and so on. Um, so they then wanted someone to take on for the next sort of four-year you know, cycle, if you like. And uh, mm. so we had the family conference and, uh, you know, I said, well, what did people think? And, uh, and the kids all said, yeah, yeah, on one condition. I said, what's that? And he said, oh, well, if you make the World Cup finals, we're all coming. So I thought, <laughs> I figured we probably wouldn't make it again. So I thought it was a safe bet. But uh, <laughs> Sure enough, four years later, I had to buddy, uh, get all the kids over there. But anyway, they seemed to have a good time. <laughs> They're trying <laughs> to trip to South, Af- <laughs> to South Africa. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, uh, wasn't bad, was it? Anyway. Um, so, yeah, so then I did uh, I did that. And then um, towards the end of that, I got a call from um, from a headhunter, actually, in, uh, in the UK. And uh, they said, uh, you know, would you be interested in, in working for a Premier League club? And... Um, and it was something that I'd, you know, my wife and I had sort of talked about it. You know, our youngest kid then was about year 10, I think. We'd sort of vaguely thought, oh, I mean, maybe when the kids are you know, finished school, we might, you know, have a crack at, uh, at at working in England. And I always fancied working at a Premier League club and so on. But um, so this really came a couple of years too early, you know. And, and I sort of said, ah, look, you know, thanks a lot, but I, I can't, uh, you know, I can't do it now. And so I'm very persistent. And um, and I, I said, well, hang on a minute. You know, I said, well, well, you know, what club? Oh, we can't tell you what club. Oh. I said, well, okay, well, give me a hint, you know, and and, uh, and they said, oh, it's in the northwest, and uh, if you know your uh, your English uh, geography, that's Liverpool or Manchester. So I figured, well, you know, that's four pretty good uh, pretty good teams uh, there, and uh, and I said, uh, okay, then uh, I understand that, and I said, uh, uh, I said red or blue. So uh, again, for those of you who know at, know your, your football, you know, red is Man United, yeah. Liverpool, and blue is Man City and Everton. And they said, uh, and they said red, and I said, oh, pretty, pretty big, uh, pretty big case. So anyway, we, we eventually, you know, got sick of this little game and came up with the fact that it was was Liverpool. And um, so very persistent, and uh, flew me over there and and uh, for an interview, and uh, and I got on really well with the with the CEO. And uh, um, in fact, I'd, I'd been a long a lifetime Tottenham Hotspur fan, and, and ironically, the night of my interview. Spurs were playing uh, Liverpool at Liverpool, and uh, I sort of figured by then that I'd probably got the job. And uh, you know, I was sort of thinking about how it was going to be. And uh, and Liverpool needed to win that game to get into Europe. And so uh, by halftime, I'd completely given up a lifetime support of Tottenham. And I'd become a Liverpool, <laughs> become a Liverpool fan. So uh, it just shows you how easily bored I am, how fickle I am. But, uh, and Liverpool won, and we made it into Europe in the following year. So so yeah, I took on that uh, that job, and again. You know, it was it was out of my comfort zone. You know, it was into a, another country, uh, a culture that that I hadn't uh, been involved in, and, and everyone sort of warned you. It's you know, it's it's a weird sort of culture, and there's so much money and 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 so on. But um, yeah, and I went to Liverpool at a time of absolute turmoil. The, the club was being sold, and the managers were changing, and CEOs were changing. In fact, within in my first six months, uh, well, after six months. Uh, the owner, the CEO, and the manager had all gone from when I was appointed. So it was, uh, it was a ter- wow. absolutely turbulent uh, time. But uh, 
again, a great experience, um, and uh, yeah, one that uh, you know I certainly don't uh, don't regret. But um, yeah, and, and you know, then I sort of I had a bit of a falling out with the manager there. He was not a very uh, easy person to work with, and eventually uh, moved on. And um, uh, and then I still I thought you know that was that would be it. And then. Um, and then I got a phone call from cricket, you know, saying uh, they knew I was in England and, and they wanted someone at short notice to cover a tour to uh, the UAE. Um, and I sort of said, oh, yeah, you know, I can uh, I can do that. And, um, yeah, one thing led to another and then um, they never had a – cricket had never had a full-time doctor. Everyone else with the, with the cricket team was full-time, you know, the physios and the coaches mm. and everyone. And the doctor was the only person that changed. And, and I sort of said to them, well, you know, what, why is that? You know, and they said, oh, we can't find anyone to, uh, you know, to do it. You know? and, and they said, you know, would, would, would I be interested in doing some more tours? And I said, well, to be honest, you know, it's really hard to fit in occasional tours around your job, but it'd be a lot easier just to do it full time. And uh, anyway, so one thing led to another and uh, I was their first sort of full time full-time doctor so uh and did that so you, uh, you created the I mean, full-time doctor role yeah, at australia yeah yeah so, and, all, uh, and all you had to do was ask <laughs> exactly exactly yeah <laughs> well they they didn't think they could afford me and um <laughs> and uh, and i said well you know there are sometimes in your life where you get paid way too much which i was at liverpool and uh sometimes where you get paid way too little which i did at cricket and so i said uh, you know life balances itself out and uh, so on so uh yeah i'd always but cricket had been my sport as a kid, and uh, you know, I sort of thought it had sort of passed me by my involvement because you know you, you get involved with different sports for, for various reasons, usually just luck and circumstance. And cricket had a great you know medical team, and you know I'd never really been been involved there. And all of a sudden that that came along, and it was just uh, yeah, just really lucky and uh, really happy to do that. And had uh, had a lot of uh, had some of the best times and and probably the worst time in my uh, in my you know uh, career as well with with cricket, but. Uh, yeah, so it was. It's a roller coaster, you know. The sport is a roller coaster. You know, you have your great moments, ups and downs with with teams, with injuries, and and obviously the Philip Hughes uh, incident was, uh, you know, was was horrendous for everyone involved with that, mm. with cricket, and uh, that's certainly been the you know the worst experience of my professional career. Um, but uh, you know, then what, three months later, you know, we're we're winning the World Cup, you know, in, in Melbourne at the MCG in front of hundred thousand people, you know, yeah. Mm. So it, it, yeah, it, life's you know funny with its ups and downs. Mm. One one thing that I'd imagine a few students would think about when they're getting into this space and they're working with the caliber of people that you've worked with, particularly when you look at Liverpool, some of those players are worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and their health is in your hands. How do you back yourself to make some of these? critical decisions around what to do with them yeah yeah you certainly do uh you know have a second thoughts occasionally and think oh if i stuff this up uh, this could be uh, could be career ending but um fortunately by the time i got to liverpool probably you know I'd, I'd had a fair bit of experience with uh, a lot of elite athletes and uh, and so on um but i think you know um the, the tricks the, the key is, is like in, in anything you know you you don't think you've got all the all the answers, so you know you make sure you have a lot of good people around you um, that you can bounce ideas off and you can uh, can help you along the way. And I certainly, you know, managed to do that wherever I've wherever I've been. And um, when I went to Liverpool, I said I was only coming if I could bring 
the, the physio and the fitness guy from the Socceroos. Uh, the three of us had a great working relationship and uh, we'd sort of made a bit of a sort of a pact that we'd try and stay together. And um, in fact, uh, Darren Burgess, who was uh, the fitness guy, um, was a fanatical Manchester United supporter and um, hated Liverpool like all Man, <laughs> all Man United uh, supporters do. You know, they've sort of got a right in blood, you know, I hate Liverpool sort of thing. And uh, so I rang him up and I said, uh, oh, you know, is there anyone in the in, in you know, the Premier League that uh, you couldn't work with? And he said, oh, look, you know, the blue of Manchester, you know, I struggle with that. I said, oh, no, it's all right. Anyone else? I said, and he said, oh, you know, look, you know, Liverpool, I really couldn't. I said, oh, it's okay, all right, I'll bring someone else in. He said, oh, hang on, hang on, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> so, um, like, just like me, uh, he didn't turn quite as quickly as me, but he soon became a, a Liverpool fan uh, as well. So, um, yeah, so I think, you know, getting back to, to your question, I mean, I think surrounding yourself with really good people, realising you don't have all the answers yourself and, and seeking expert opinion and... Um, and often what you're doing, you know, is just coordinating everyone's opinions and, and you know, drawing them all together and, uh, and you know, you get all the information you can, whether it's for the diagnosis or for treatment or management. Um, but, you know, one of the really difficult issues in, uh, in sport, uh, in sports medicine, you know, whether you're a doctor or a physio, is deciding whether someone's right to play. And, um, you know... Most players carry injuries of some sort, you know, uh, the whole time. And, you know, the, the big challenge is determining, you know, whether that, whether someone who's maybe had an injury or, or uh, recovering from a, a long-term injury, whether they're right to play. So then there's two elements to that. One is are they going to perform to their maximum? And secondly, are they going to avoid getting re-injured? Because there's one thing that's a good, you know, career uh, killer for a doctor or a physio is, uh, you know, you have someone – You've rehab for the last three or four weeks with a hamstring or something like that, and you know five minutes of the game, it goes ping, and uh, they clutch the back of their leg, and you have this sick feeling in your stomach, thinking you know maybe I might need another job next week. So um, <laughs> that's uh, that's always a worry. Um, so you know they're they're difficult decisions. Um, in a way, you know the easy thing to do is keep people out, you know, because then you can't be proven wrong. You know, uh, you can't uh, they can't do another hamstring if they're uh, sitting on the bench. Um, <laughs> So, but I, I always took the approach, and, and I would say this to, to the coaches or managers or whatever you want to call them, you know, that, uh, you know, there's two ways of doing this. I can just keep everyone out in an extra week or two, um, or we can have a crack and I, you know, take a punt on some and use my judgment and my experience and everything like that, but accept that occasionally we'll get it wrong. And uh, invariably, the coaches will always say, no, no, I want that more aggressive approach and so on. Until, of course, you get it wrong, in which case I completely forget that uh, that agreement you had. But um, Yeah, and then it'll still be your fault. Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> is when they do, is that when... possibly what happened with the manager, Brookie? <laughs> well, <laughs> Who was the manager? Uh, Kenny Del Gleish, uh, oh, legend, yeah. of, uh, legend of Liverpool, probably their greatest ever player. You know, yeah. and that, uh, He was a bit old school and, uh, and he'd been in uh, – but the funny thing, you know, is, is in, um, in English football, managers surround themselves with, with their own people. And um, so what often happens is when a manager comes, you know, everyone gets cleaned out from the, you know, from the, the, the chef to the, uh, to the team manager to the, the fitness guy to the goalkeeping coach, whatever, you know, because there's this, this sort of rule that, you know, if you're not with me, you're against me, you know. And um, I'd sort of had 
become quite close to the previous manager. Um, uh, there's a guy called Roy Hodgson who went on to coach uh, to manage England. And because uh, we'd both arrived at the same time and, and the place was just an absolute shambles. And, you know, we, the two of us basically ran the show for a few months. And, uh, and so I'd out. And you're almost sort of, if, if you're, if you're close to the, the previous person, you're almost the you know the enemy of the of the successor and uh, and so on. And so you're always you know working under that sort of burden right from the start. But anyway, that's you know that's the way English football is. I, I wouldn't really recommend it as a as a you know it's a great experience, but uh, for certainly not for career uh, for job security, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend the English Premier League at all. But um, it's very different here in you know in the AFL, for instance, where. You know the the staff are are respected, and you know they'd never think about you know sacking the the physio or the doctor. You know when a new manager, when a new coach came in, you know you'd, the coach would just accept that uh, you've got a good person there and, and work with them. So um, yeah, very different in uh, in, in England, but uh, no, mm. you know, no regrets. Had a great uh, great experience there, and I loved uh, loved the city of Liverpool. Really enjoyed uh, you know the. Uh, I remember when I got appointed, I thought, oh, you know, because I'd, I'd lived in England in the eighties when Liverpool was a bit of a basket case and so on. And, I remember thinking, oh, you know, great club, shit city. And after a couple of years, I realised it's probably a shit club in a great city. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, it's good, uh, good time. Any city has two passions of the Beatles and football. You know, it can't be a bad place, really. So yeah. uh, I loved it. Uh, I loved it there. It's good. Must be right. Um, wh- one thing we talk about a lot, and something we preach a lot on, on the podcast, is the value of volunteer experience for grads. And we touched on it earlier, but. Um, yeah. You've obviously had extensive volunteer experience at Uni Blues, um, which has, you know, held you in such great stead. Do you see volunteer experience for aspiring sports medicine grads as absolutely essential? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, doctors, physios, you know, anyone who wants to be involved, uh, you know, exercise scientists and like that. You've got to, uh, you've got to get hands-on experience, and you've just got to and watch people. You know, I mean, the problem is that there's not, you know, a lot of opportunities for uh, for doctors. That's why we, you know, we've got a great setup at Blues because we've got a lot of people there, and then we can, you know, get young doctors in, and they can, uh, you know, they can learn on the uh, on the job sort of thing. So uh, that that's that's easier for physios. So you know, we have a lot of physio students who start off as trainers and then when they graduate they become physios for the club and so on so that's a great way of, uh, of, of doing it so yeah I think um, there's two elements to that one is that you've obviously yeah, it's the best way to learn um, you know you can read all the books you like but uh, you know there's there's nothing like learning on the jo- on the job and the trouble with with medicine in particular is that hospitals you know we all do most of our training in hospitals and we do our first three years of, of working in hospitals. And there's really no sports medicine in hospitals. I mean, there's the odd fracture or the odd, you know, serious injury. But, you know, you never get to treat a hamstring or you never get to, you know, to see a mild concussion or anything like that, you know, or you might see the really, you know, the really dramatic thing. So um, there's just no other way to get experience, which makes sort of sports medicine a bit unique, really. So, you know, there's opportunities to work with teams, there's opportunities to sit in with the doctors at these sports medicine clinics that uh, that are dotted around the place, which is really uh, really important um so yeah just just incredibly important um they're always looking for uh volunteers to to man the uh, the medical tent at a, at a marathon and uh or a, you know some sort of event like that um so that the, the more variety the more uh, different sports you can uh, uh you can but the underlying thing probably you know if we go back to basics is you've probably got to love sport you know if you don't love sport then 
you know, it, it's you're not going to enjoy sitting around, you know, watching because you spend a lot of time. I mean, the number of hours I've spent watching training, whether yeah. it be 5 a.m. with the swim team or uh, whether it's a, you know, a four-hour cricket session in the nets and, and you know, or, or uh, you know, soccer in the freezing cold at, at Liverpool and, and so on. So um, you spend a lot of time watching training and, you know, chatting and, you know, whatever. But um, And often you don't have, you're not doing that much. You know, sometimes you'll, you'll be very active, but other times you, you won't. So you've got to love that and, and love, you know, the opportunity. I mean, I, I would watch Liverpool and, and think, wow, you know, I get to watch Steven Gerrard and Luis Suarez and these guys training. You know, people that pay, <laughs> pay millions to do this. Yeah. So I never, uh, I never got to... Never got bored, but um, and the same with uh, you know any sport. You just enjoy watching the best people, even at even at training, and and even at training they stand out. You know, you, it's not hard to pick the uh, the stars even at, at training. Yeah. So you've got to love sport, and so that makes it a bit easier to volunteer. Um, but I think yeah, volunteering is so important. It's also really important if you want to get onto the sports physician program. You know, which is quite competitive now. You know, they actually look and see what you've done. You know, and and, and you've got to have shown your commitment to uh, to to sports medicine and, and so on. And then you know, you get to meet people. You know, you get to meet other practitioners, or uh, and you know, there are other opportunities come up. You know, and uh, you know, I might someone might ask me, "Oh, have you got someone who can do this?" And they'll say, "Oh, okay. Well, I've got this. You know, student who can help out, or a young doctor who can help out, and so on." So. You know, it's really important to just get yourself known and try and get a mentor um, and uh, and so on. You know, I, I had a guy who pestered me for bloody months, you know, about uh, helping him get an overseas uh, elective when he was a medical student. And oh, I thought, oh, bloody hell, you know, he's a persistent bastard. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and eventually, you know, I, I organised something for him and uh, that fell through and then I organised something else and it worked out incredibly well. And... Um, and it turned out that you know this guy you know was a fantastic writer as well as being a, a you know a good you know very smart medical student and and he finished up helping us to you know rewrite our textbook you know and um, you know it just turned out to be one of the best and, and now he's now he's a university doctor uh, walks but um, you know it, it's uh, it it's really is a you know an opportunity to sort of uh, help people along the way and um, point them in the right direction give them opportunities you know which is. is it's really rewarding for me and and useful for them. So, um, you know, it's a win-win, really. Brookie, was that textbook the one that's referred to as the Bible of sports medicine? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a that was a weird story, really. Because uh, <laughs> you gotta love this, when uh, someone starts with that. That's a weird story. <laughs> it's about well, to be good. You know, well, it's not that exciting, but I mean, I, I was a youngish. Uh, sports medicine doctor. I hadn't, you know, been at it for very long, and uh, and I wrote an article for some medical newspaper, you know, and so on. That um, anyway, I got a call from a, from a publisher, so McGraw Hill, who are the biggest medical publishers around, and they said, oh, "I would like you to write a sports medicine textbook." I said, "Oh, come on, you know, I'm just the start of this game, you know. I can't write a textbook, you know, it's just the thing you do when you're, uh, you know, old and grey, and then you know, eminent, and uh, so on, and." Um, but, you know, my colleagues reminded me that I'd basically bagged the hell out of every other sports medicine book that had been written because they were all crap. You know, they're all American and they're all theoretical and they just – they didn't actually tell you how to practice sports medicine. And uh, so eventually I said uh, I said yes. And, uh, and I thought, oh, I'll just, you know, do it in my spare time, you know. So uh, I got another guy to help me. Um, 
and we became co-authors. And uh, three months later, I had not written a single word. And I thought, Jesus, you know, this is, we're not getting very far here. So I bit the bullet and uh, and stopped work and just did it uh, did it full time for like twelve months. And um, you know, virtually no income. I think I did one day's work a week, but the rest of the time I just uh, leave home. I take the kids to school in the morning. I'd go straight to this guy's place, get there at nine o'clock, leave at midnight, just work every day, every day, every night. And um, the book became known at home as the bloody book. You know, where's Dad? Oh, he's working on the bloody book. So, uh, <laughs> but eventually, it uh, it came out, and uh, we we sort of uh, published the book, and we had a big sort of launch. And uh, on the morning of the uh, of the launch, or the afternoon of the the book launch, my uh, my wife, who was thirty two weeks pregnant with our fourth kid. Um, uh, ruptured her membranes, broken waters, and went into early labour. And uh, and I thought, mm-hmm. Jesus, I've got a I've got a book launch tonight, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen three kids anyway, you know, and uh, uh, she wasn't. Yeah. Haven't so, seen a book launch before. No, <laughs> exactly. Anyway, so uh, I went to the book launch. She was fine. She wasn't actually going to deliver or anything like that. She was just getting arrested in the, in hospital and so on. And um, so uh, my daughter, who was about uh, what was she about twelve at the time, she. Uh, she came along to the book launch as well with my uh, with my dad and uh, and pronounced to everyone that uh, mummy didn't want anything to do with this bloody book anyway. So uh, <laughs> it was uh, probably appropriate that she wasn't there. But um, yeah, it became uh, it became incredibly successful. We um, uh, and you know we I never really thought about writing a textbook. It was really writing. It was more like a how to manual as much as anything. You know how to how to make a diagnosis, how to treat people, and so on and um, but then it started being used as a textbook. We thought, oh, shit, you know, we're going to have to reference it and, you know, do all that sort of stuff. Anyway, it became a sort of a, a juggernaut, really. And, um, yeah, it sort of became known as, as the Bible of sports medicine just because it, yeah, it was practical and, uh, and you know, the other books weren't that, weren't that great. And there are a couple of attempts by people to sort of uh, write another textbook in sports medicine. But they, uh, and the last 10 years, people have just given up and it's sort uh, of, it's now it's a massive like it's a two volume two thousand page sort of a uh, thing. It's on its fifth edition. The genuine sold probably, Bible sold probably <laughs> two hundred thousand copies, I think. You know, over the wow, uh, over hey. the journey, and uh, oh, yeah, it still uh, still sells incredibly well. Every physio student, and uh, so it was very much a multidisciplinary. The thing about sports medicine is it's quite unique in medicine. It's very multidisciplinary, so it's very much a team effort, doctors, physios, massage, podiatry, psychology, nutrition, and so on, whereas the other forms of medicine are very hierarchical. You know, the doctors are way up here, you know, and everyone else is sort of the shit kicker, really, but um, mm. uh, we're very much a team. So this book was really relevant for, for everyone. It was relevant for physios and for the dietists and masseurs and so on. So, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a good career move. You know, it's, it's amazing. It's a great trick, actually. What you do is you basically grab everyone else's ideas Put them in, put them all in together. Put your name to the book, and everyone thinks you know everything. It's fantastic. Well, that's actually the purpose of this podcast. We're just we're we're doing our research right now to then put it in the book and have it as yeah. a nice little income earner on the side. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, it was uh, it was great, and it, it obviously opens a lot of doors as well. You know, and uh, you know, I got invited to lots of uh, you know, lots of international speaking gigs and uh you know probably spoke given the keynote address at every sports medicine conference in the world and uh um done a lot of traveling and had a lot of great experiences uh like that so yeah it's a good career move writing a book um it was pretty hard work at the time but um 
I had a very you know, clear idea on what I wanted to write and how I wanted to write it and, and you know, how it should be done. And, and you know, I, on the very first day, I wrote out this sort of chapter list and, and, uh, and an outline, and it turned out to be exactly the same uh, when it got published. So obviously, I must have always had this in the back of my mind. But uh, mm. yeah, so yeah, that's been a good, uh, good experience. Um, the other thing that uh, that I got really involved with was uh, I mentioned it before was developing the specialty of sports medicine. So um, it's very hard to create a new specialty in, in medicine because you know it's all the old traditional you know medicine and surgery and gynecology mm. and, and pediatrics and things. And uh, so you have to go through an incredible number of hoops before you are recognized which we we did it took us you know when we when we started they said oh, it'll take 15 years and we said oh come on you know, you haven't seen us in action you know we'll do it in half the time <laughs> well sure enough 15 years later we uh, we got the gig and uh that was a marathon and uh you know the hours and hours that we spent uh developing you know you got to develop uh, a curriculum and exam uh, processes mm. and uh, training programs and it's the only medical specialty that's not government funded directly because all the other ones are you train in hospitals which are government funded so uh this was was all in private clinics and so on so it's quite unique so and we really led the world in developing this this program a lot of other countries have sort of followed us now and uh, so on so we've been yeah so that was a you know really great involvement with a bunch of bunch of us all about the same vintage we all uh, put a huge amount of time and effort into that and so that young people now can uh, have got a great career path, you know. Just uh, they just go through it very smoothly, whereas we really had to had to sort of learn on the job and things. So it's nice to be able to do that. Is that probably the the major difference between trying to get into sports medicine back then compared to now? Is that there is yeah. a trans there is a trajectory you can take that's yeah, there's a, there's a very clear pathway now, and uh, mm. so that's uh, yeah, that makes it a lot easier for for people, and it's. You know, back in the day, I mean, anyone could, you know, basically put up a sign saying sports medicine, you know, and, you know, they might have, you know, looked after their kids' football team once on a Sunday, you know, and that was a, that was it. You know, there was no way of distinguishing people who'd been adequately trained and uh, had that appropriate experience. Whereas now, if you're a specialist sport and exercise medicine physician, you know, you've got these letters, F-A-C-S-C-P after your name, um, you know, the public can be, be pretty reassured that, you know, you've been well-trained and, and, you've you know, you've... Your knowledge is good. You've passed all the exams and uh, and so on. And and it's tough. The exams are tough. You know, it's not a it's not a gimme. Uh, it's not easy to get into. You know, probably ten or fifteen years ago, it was relatively easy to get into the sports medicine training program because it wasn't that popular. And uh, and then when it became especially, it got a lot more, a lot more popular. So now it's quite competitive, and uh, as it is in a lot of you know medical specialty training programs. So um, yeah, it's 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 not easy to get into. And then when you're in it. You know, it's, it's you work hard for those four years, uh, but you know that's what you enjoy doing, and yeah, and you you know you get paid. I mean, you don't make a fortune, but you you get enough to uh, to get by. But um, if that's what you enjoy doing, you know, then uh, then you're incredibly lucky. I mean, I can honestly say I've never got up in the morning and not wanted to go to work. You know, and um, you know never had a day where I haven't enjoyed work. And you know, if you can say that at the end of your long career, um, you know, you're you're pretty lucky, I think. So. I just count myself very lucky that I was able to combine my work and my passion, and and again, you know, not many people who can uh, mm. who can do that. And uh, you know, as my wife keeps saying, you know, do they realise that you'd pay them to work for them and uh, so on? But uh, you know, <laughs> keep that one quiet. But um, yeah, it's still 
I still got. I mean, I've changed direction a little bit the last few years, but I still love the love the sports medicine aspect of, uh, of things, and still love going down to Uni Blues training on Tuesday and Thursday night, and games on Saturday, and and you know, a bit of involvement with. Especially uh, when when Ryan keeps you busy. Yeah, well, that's right. You know, we uh, you know we have to focus on some of the lesser players sometimes, but uh, that's all right. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Well, I was just about to say, there's no point even focusing on me, Brookie. You know, I'm, I'm very, I reckon, I don't know how many players we've got, but I'm most definitely in the bottom bottom five. I would have thought that needs attention. Uh, yeah, well, nah, it's not just uh, ability, Wolves. It's uh, you're an important part of that, uh, very important part of the club. But, uh, yeah, anyway. yeah the, the return on treatment wouldn't be too high. <laughs> 30 minutes massage for... Uh, Four uh, kicks, two handballs. Yeah, Bro- uh, Brookie's uh, given me some acupuncture before on on my calf and my quad, and unbelievable stuff. But I, <laughs> I thought I'm not I'm not going to go back because this is just a waste of this. <laughs> the dry needling, sorry, not acupuncture, yeah. it's dry needling. I'm not sure if that's uh, the same yeah. thing. That's probably uh, different, different, different yeah, things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought I'm not going to come back because these needles could be used on someone else. So there's no point even going back there. The real um, reason he didn't, he didn't come back, Ruben, is it's quite painful. And it's not <laughs> pain. So uh, that was the real reason, you know. But, uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned the pain threshold. It's yeah, time yeah, to yeah. say it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah whatever. So there's, a, there's a theme, yeah. 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 Um, Brookie, you mentioned you've, you've gone a different path in previous years. Um, you, you've written a book uh, called A Fat Lot of Good, which is unreal. I believe Hamish McInnes, my housemate, has it in his bookcase at the moment. I'm planning to read it, uh, but I will get there. Um, I I can see it behind Peter right now. (laughs) It'll be there. Um, And you've also created a non-for-profit campaign, which is called Sugar by Half. Can you take us through the inspiration to create both of these? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it's a long story that I'll try and keep it pretty short, but... um, you know, like most people, these, these things come out of personal experience, really. And uh, it was actually when I was in Liverpool, um, uh, this is uh, well, nearly 10 years ago now. Um, and, you know, if you'd asked me then whether I was healthy, I'd have said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm fine. Um, the reality was that, you know, I, I had a family history of type 2 diabetes. I was overweight, borderline obese, you know, like many middle-aged men. I'd you know, probably put on half a kilogram a year for 30 years and, you know, gradually loosening the buttons on your, uh, you know, on your jacket and things like that. And uh, I'd had, a, you know, a few other conditions, you know, fatty liver and high triglycerides and things like that. So looking back on it, I was clearly pre-diabetic and, and I was headed towards diabetes and so on. And around that time, a colleague of mine in South Africa, a guy by the name of Tim Noakes, a very famous sports scientist, came out and sort of said that he thought we'd been wrong all this time focusing on fat as the, as the evil in our food, that it was actually sugar and starch and carbohydrates that were the problem. And that was a pretty radical concept, and I thought he was crazy at the time. And um, but I looked into it, and, and the more I read, the more I sort of thought, no, there might be something in this. And uh, that was in itself quite disturbing. And that you know the whole world has been on this low fat diet for thirty or forty years, and uh, here are these uh, you know which I'd always assume was based on science and good you know evidence and so on, and turned out to be based on money and politics and egos and things like that. But so it really was quite disturbing, and uh, and I the more I read, the more I came to the conclusion he was probably right that we actually had been getting the wrong dietary advice for thirty or forty years, and so I decided it was time to try an experiment. You know, and uh, those the scientists uh, among you will, would know that you know research with an experiment with an n equals one is a waste of time, except when the one is you, in which case it becomes very important. So I decided it was time for an n equals one experiment on myself, and. Um, 
So on day one, I sort of weighed myself and got all my blood, uh, blood tests done. And then I embarked on a low-carb sort of healthy fat diet. So I eliminated all, pretty much all carbs from my diet. So all sugar, all starches, no bread, rice, pasta, potatoes, all that sort of stuff. And uh, went back to eating probably the way that my you know, parents and grandparents had eaten, lots of fresh food and meat and fish, and fruit and vegetables and nuts and seeds and dairy and eggs, all the things that we've been told, you know, were terrible for you. And uh, I decided I'd do that for three months. And uh, in that three months, uh, I lost 13 kilograms in, uh, in 13 weeks. I uh, reversed all my metabolic issues, my triglycerides, my fatty liver, my insulin, everything went back to normal. Uh, I felt fantastic. I, uh, my exercise capacity improved. My concentration improved. I just, you know, had an amazing response to that. And um, the only negative was I had to get a new wardrobe because I'd gone down two sizes in my clothes. <laughs> but um, but uh, that just blew me away. And, um, you know, I realized that, yeah, we actually have been uh, been wrong all this time and we needed to focus on reducing carbohydrates. And so, you know, you, you've got one or two choices there. You can either, you know, smugly sort of say to yourself, well, I'm right, you know, I'll look after myself and, uh, you know, be pretty healthy and uh, keep it to yourself. Or you can sort of try and spread the word. And I sort of felt, I really felt duty bound that I had to try and tell people about this and try and change the way people which is, uh, as I've discovered after uh, nine years of it, is very difficult. <laughs> and um, so um, I started, you know, writing about it and talking about it and, and things. And then, uh, then we started this uh, this not for profit about five or six years ago called Sugar by Half. Mainly because, you know, like while sugar is not the only issue, it's probably the most important thing. And, and we're all having way too much sugar, not just the obvious sort of sugar, but all the hidden sugars as well. So we uh, started a charity called Sugar by Half, and we've been uh, working on that for the last few years. We've got you know, education programs and, and schools, and we've got uh, campaigns around the place and corporate stuff and things. So that's been good. And then, um, uh, and then last year, um, I decided it was time to tackle the issue of type two diabetes, which is arguably the biggest medical problem in this country. We've got nearly two million people with type two diabetes, and Another two million with pre-diabetes, and uh, you know, it's the most common cause of blindness, the most common cause of amputations, the most common cause of heart disease, of, of dementia, of Alzheimer's, and, and all these. It's a massive problem that I, I didn't really understand completely until relatively recently. And um, we're always told, despite it being a disease of carbohydrate intolerance, that you know the recommended diet is this low-fat diet, you know, low-fat, high-carbohydrate, because of this obsession with, with fat that we've had for so long. The reality is, is the, rec- the the ideal diet is to reduce your carbohydrates, which is exactly what I'd done, and uh, I'd got rid of my pre-diabetes, and um, and there was ample evidence from programs overseas that you could, re- you know, put your diabetes into remission by changing your diet. So initially, we were just going to license one of the uh, overseas programs, the UK program, but that all fell through, and eventually we thought, well, let's have a crack ourselves. So we've developed a program called Defeat Diabetes, which. Uh, there's a website and an app, um, and uh, it basically involved probably you know six to eight months of work last year during lockdown, where I developed all the content with a couple of colleagues, lots of videos and articles and recipes and meal plans and cooking demonstrations and uh, you name it, it's uh, it's on the app and it really just gives you takes you on a journey really to explain why and how you can put your uh, your type two diabetes into remission. Even if you're not diabetic, it, it can certainly help prevent you get to that uh so that's been a, a really interesting 
process. Um, been a lot of work, and uh, we're still at it. We're still trying to get more and more people signed up to uh, to the app. Uh, so I'll put a plug in for uh, for that now. Um, you can get on and have a fourteen day free trial and uh, see how you go. Uh, defeat diabetes, it's called. Um, but that's been a really interesting experience. I've never never been involved with an app before, and uh, you know it's a lot more complicated than it uh, than it looks. And uh, that's been a really interesting uh, process. So um, yeah, you're always learning, always doing different things. So I guess nowadays I, I sort of probably spend two thirds of my time on the, the diet side of things and try to run sugar by half and, and defeat diabetes, and then. The other third is uh, still with my sports medicine. I, I do a day a week at AFL clubs and um, still have an involvement there. And then there's you know, Uni Blues as well and a few other bits and pieces in the in the sports medicine world. So, um, yeah, still pretty busy and, yeah, keep on uh, keep on learning and, you know, it's good fun. I might have to uh, get onto this book, Brookie. I ate way too many Tim Tams at the moment and I can't stop myself, so... Got the, uh, the COVID, uh, the COVID wise, kilos, eh? Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of people have uh, have got into bad dietary habits just out of boredom, as much as anything. I think you know when you're working at home and you know you walk past the fridge or the, the pantry and it's just too easy to uh, mm. to, to go in there and uh, and relieve the boredom a bit. So yeah, I think it's really uh, really important. But what I found is that uh, you know this this diet, if you want to call it, this way of eating, I prefer to call it really. Uh, is, is just very sustainable and because uh, you're not as hungry. So when you stop, basically so carbohydrates are things that make you hungry and the fats and proteins make you feel full. So if you just stick to the fats and proteins mainly, um, then you're not as not as hungry and you're not always wanting to reach into the, uh, into the fridge and the, uh, and the Tim Tams and so on. But, um, <laughs> I haven't had a Tim Tam for, uh, for nine years now. I used to love Tim Tams. Probably, oh. um, I probably find them incredibly sweet now, but uh, mm. I, um, yeah, they are very nice, aren't they? But um, it's funny, you know. You don't. I mean, people say, "Oh, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do without this, or I couldn't do without that." And I mean, you feel so good when you're on, you know, on this way of eating that uh, you know it's, it's not hard to continue it. I've mm. I've started buying only dark lint chocolate. Ah, very good. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but I'll I will. Uh, say that last night I bought some Coke bottles that were covered in sugar. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. No, nah, there was only six of them, though. Like, just, it wasn't a full just, uh, I'm just surprised that an elite athlete like you, Wilkes, you know, well, would, uh, would have a diet well, like that. I really. surprised myself, Brookie. Was, but, uh, Ryan, was that on your way home from primary school? <laughs> tuck shop? Uh, I'll, I'll, yeah, no, I just walked past and I was like, oh, it's Sunday night. Yeah, but yeah, I, I think the chocolate one's a good one though. Yeah, dark chocolate. Yeah, I have a little piece of dark chocolate every night. You know, uh, after dinner, mm. so that's good. So, yeah, you've got to have a few little indulgences. The old glass of red wine or something like that. But um, that's it. yeah, by and large, I just stick to. And the main thing is just keeping away from processed foods because basically processed foods have got all the crap in it. You know, got all the sugars and the vegetable oils and, and so on. If you just stick to to fresh food, you know, um, yeah, meat and fish and veggies and fruit and eggs and dairy mm. and so on, you, you can't go wrong, you know, and uh, it's really enjoyable. I mean, I, I really enjoy what I what I eat and, uh, you know, so, yeah, so uh, tonight I had, instead of having rice, I had cauliflower rice, you know, and then, you know, so mm. you still have your, your fixes, you know, if I want noodles, I have zucchini noodles and, you know, things like that. Mm. So there's ways around, uh, yeah, I still, uh, still enjoy my food. So uh, you don't have to be miserable if you're on a, on a sensible way of eating. So there you go. Yeah, and it sounds <laughs> 
It sounds like a, a great solution for uh, students who might be on a bit of a budget too because if you're spending all your money on food that's going to make you feel hungry quicker, you're going to spend – you're just going to be buying more food. But if you spend it on the things that keep you full for longer, then you spend less money on, on food. So, there's a little budgeting hack yeah. as well that you can leverage your book with. Well, it's true. But, but, you know, people – unfortunately, people say, oh, meat, I can't afford meat. It's too expensive and so on. But, in fact, you know, there are, you can get cheap cuts of meat and, you know, you go, go at, uh, you know – five o'clock when the butcher's closing for the day and gets a nice cheap meat and things like that. But, you know, you actually do finish up eating a whole lot less uh, if you eat if you eat good quality uh, food. So, in fact, yeah, as you say, it finishes up being at least uh, money neutral, if not uh, if not better. So, yeah, lots of good mm. reasons for it. Brookie, if you were to, to write another textbook and it could only have one page inside it and on that page you could only have maybe two or three sentences with – one piece of advice for people looking to pave their way into sports medicine, what would that one piece of advice be? Um, right. Well, I'd say follow your passion. You know, do what, you, do what you're passionate about, you know. Don't worry about, you know, what makes you money or, or what it does. I mean, the, the thing is, you know, you want to you enjoy what you, what you do. So follow your passion. Um, volunteer. Is the only way to uh, to learn and to get experience and to make contacts. So make a pest of yourself and, uh, and uh, you know, just get as much experience uh, as you can. And, uh, and the last thing I'd say would be Jerf, J-E-R-F, just eat real food. Love it. Love it. Brookie, we can't leave you, and this can be the final question, but we can't leave you without giving you the opportunity to, give your very own podcast a plug. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the Brookie and Burjo podcast. Uh, well, the, the Brookie and Burjo podcast is in remission at the moment. Uh, I did notice uh, that. I, yeah, I we, went uh, to go have a, a listen back at a few and I saw the last episode was a few months ago. Yeah, we. Um, so this is with Darren Burgess, who's my mate who uh, I met through the Socceroos and we went to Liverpool together and now uh, he's uh, he's got me working at Melbourne Football Club, actually. I think he... Uh, he figured that um, I took him twenty thousand kilometres to Liverpool. He could take me twenty kilometres to Melbourne. So uh, <laughs> he's, got, he's got me involved there one day a week. But um, so we've been do, we've done a number of episodes of, of a podcast where we've uh, the first few we we just chatted among ourselves and and Darren's had an amazing sporting life. Uh, so he, he told us his story. But um, then we got a whole bunch of uh, different people on board to uh, to chat to for for an hour or so, and uh, yeah, we really enjoyed it. So. We did a, a, our first series, if you like, uh, last year. Then the football season came along, and it's been uh, been pretty hectic for uh, for both of us. Um, Darren, in particular, who's the high performance manager at, at Melbourne. But um, we're going to resume once the football season uh, is over, which uh, hopefully will be grand final day for us. And um, but so we'll get some more interesting guests, uh, on. But um, there are a couple of really interesting. Uh, the Travis Boke one is absolutely yeah, inspirational. That's one of the best interviews I've ever heard, and uh, every young footballer, every young sports person, should have a listen to the Travis Boke uh, episode. It's that's uh, really good. We, uh, we we sort of promoted it again last week when he played his uh, his whatever he played his three hundredth or whatever it was. But um, yeah, it was very impressive about how he goes about. Um, so what we're really trying to tease out of people, you know, is yeah, it's just their approach to their sport and, and, um, and you know, what they've learnt and, you know, what they want to pass on to, to the younger generation and, uh, and Travis Boke was inspiring. So, yeah, it's been good fun. 
and uh, we'll get back into it uh, post footy season. But uh, we haven't won any awards like uh, like you have, Walks, but we're, we're working on it. You know? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it, and it is it has been a pleasure to to interview you for the second time in podcast format. <laughs> Um, but like uh, like any footballer or sportsman or sportsmen and women should listen to the Travis Boak episode. Every single sports medicine student should listen to this episode of the Sports Grab podcast because it has been absolutely awesome chatting to you. I think I, I, I struggle to find someone who has had the vast amount of experience as you've had, like from volunteering at your local club to the height of the Australian Olympic team in Liverpool, um, your experience is just mind-boggling. So uh, we can't thank you enough and we appreciate you being the first sports medicine guest we've had on the podcast. So um, it's been an absolute ripper. So I really appreciate your time tonight. Well, I've been honoured to be the first uh, sports medicine person and, uh, yeah, it's been great chatting to you guys. You're doing a great job. Well, Rubes, I can honestly say that was uh, that was one of the great episodes. I, I'm, I'm, where do I rank this? I reckon almost <laughs> it'd be up there. I'm not, I'm not going to put a number on it, but it's up there. Jeez, <laughs> um, Brookie has had some experience. I know we mentioned it at the top of the episode, but like he can tell stories, which is like if you look back at your career. You'd honestly just be like, well, I hope I do have some really cool stories and he's got plenty of them and he would do after working for some of those organisations that he spoke about. Um, Well, he's given me a bit of career inspiration because we both started off volunteering at Grassroots Club. We both then launched into Australian University Sport at the World Uni Games. We've both then gone on to work at Cricket Australia so now I'm thinking if I can just follow his path of going to Liverpool, Liverpool, uh, the Olympics, uh, athletics, swimming, Australia, all these other great events. Then I'll, then I could be happy. But Sim- um, similar peg you two, I reckon. Yeah, lots to look forward to. So yeah. thanks for painting that vision for me, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, well, um, yeah. What were some takeaways? Yeah. So takeaways. Number one, I think you know is uh, a must do, and that is you know find a volunteering opportunity to apply your craft at. Now. What we're in we're in August, Ryan. Yep. Footy season in Melbourne is wrapping up. Cricket season is upon us. There are not too many cricket clubs out there that have a team doctor. So this is your opportunity to go knocking on the door of your local cricket club and say, I'm gonna be the first team doctor your club has ever had. Mm. And if you do that for one year, two year, three years, however long you stay there for, you can then go to your next interview and say, I, like Peter Bruckner, created the cricket club team doctor role. Maybe not for the Australian cricket team, mm. but for your local team. And that is going to show a lot of initiative on top of the experience you're going to get from working with those players as well. So, yeah. this cricket season, that's uh, that's the low-hanging fruit for any potential team doctors out there. Yeah. And make sure you name drop the name in the interview and say you heard that from the Sports Grab podcast. And I reckon that'll probably help you out. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mate, my one was just around, you know, he mentioned it took 13 years to get from the start to finish and, and being able to sort of really progress in his career in like, sports start, medicine. Start to, the, 
Start to the start. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Great way to put it, start to the start. 13 years of toiling away to get qualified, mm. essentially. Mm. So, I guess if it's going to take that long, decide if this is for you and that you're passionate about it from the get-go. Do the soul searching, do whatever you need, but make sure that you're really passionate. And he mentions a lot in there in our chat with him, you know, you've got to be passionate about it. And that, I think that applies across the whole sports industry, really. You've got to have the passion to, to work in it. But I think specifically in this field, um, if, if it's going to take 13 years to get there, make sure that you're bloody, bloody passionate about it. Yeah. And uh, Peter didn't say this in the episode, but off air afterwards when we were chatting to him, uh, he gave us a little insight into what l- really loving it practically looks like so he said to us he hasn't watched a tv show in about 30 years and after this he's going to go have his little piece of dark chocolate have a glass of red wine and then dive into some more work because he genuinely loves it and he said that's what he does every single night he comes home he'll have dinner he'll do more work because he absolutely loves it and those extra three four five hours a day of just absolutely loving the work compound over time and have put him head and shoulders over every single person Hmm. else. Yeah. So, that is what it looks like. You've got to love it. Uh, Final takeaway, buy his book, A Fat Lot of Good for a Healthy Diet. Uh, And while you're at it, go grab a copy of The Networker. He mentioned networking is extremely important um, in the sports industry. So, we've got a little tool that helps you Form deep relationships with key people. It's on the SportsGrad website for 19 bucks. if you want to check it out. Uh, Peter's book is fantastic as well. He's also got a terrific podcast. So, the more resources you can dive into, uh, the better. Awesome. Can't, um, can't speak more highly of the networker, Rubes. Um, it's genu- genuinely just has a la- I've used it a couple of times and it's great using the own, you know, our own product, which is fantastic. <laughs> But it just allows me to map out my thoughts before I go into meeting with someone. And it's mm. genuine. I've, I've got some awesome feedback from grad, like literally grads that are 21 to 28 year old people who are in the industry and are using it. So mm. um, I can't sort of say more. It, it's awesome. So if anyone wants to grab that, go to our website. It's on there. Um, All righty. Well, that's us done. Thank you for listening. Find us on LinkedIn. Give us a message. We'd love to chat with you uh, and we'll see you next time.